That's for those who are interested, let's start to look at the, the nuance. And we can say we have a body, but really, you know, the, the identity is experiencing as bodying, as minding, as spacing, as much more. Mm -hmm. um, and if that is the experience, then yes, healing changes because even experiencing that brings on healing immediately because there's a, a great release intention. Yeah. And we have these compartments that kind of tell us the progression of life. But again, these are all cultural. Th these are not fundamental to being human. They're cultural superimpositions mm -hmm. that many times we forget are cultural and then we get encased within them and it creates tension because we fundamentally are not uh, that. Right? It's like it's like a, a river that's flowing and now you put up three or four dams, guess what? There's going to be a lot of pressure in those dams, right? Because mm -hmm. the river's nature is to flow free. Mm -hmm. And now you put up the dams, there's going to be pressure. So we have so many dams in our society and that mm -hmm. causes a tension in the body that will lead to headaches, that will lead to anxiety, that will lead to lack of clarity and confusion, purpose of my life. Um, back pain, so many things, right? You got to accentuate the positive. Wow! I feel good. A little bit of feel good goes a long way. You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just bad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? Hello and welcome to another show, Accentuating the Positive with Karen Swain. Always a blessing to be with you all. And please remember, if you're liking the shows, to subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. YouTube has changed their, you know, policies. I used to hide how many subscribers I had because I had so few. <laughs> I've been on YouTube for 15 years. Uh, but I turned off all the ads on my YouTube um, shows, which means that YouTube didn't share them which means that I had a low subscribership. But I, I have to say I have a very dedicated audience and you're all um, fascinating people and very dedicated to health and healing and spirituality. So I honour all of you that, you know, watch the shows and ask all your questions and participate in the uh, what the, our guests are offering. Today we're going to talk about, well, lots of things, but health and healing with Dr Anoop Kumar. Welcome to the show, Anoop. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, thank you beautiful to have you on the show i'm so excited about your story you've uh, i saw you've spoken a lot with deepak deepak was one of my first spiritual teachers way back in the day uh, he got a little bit scientific for for my understanding at the time which i think that you can too <laughs> so we'll try and dumb it down a little bit for uh, people that aren't so scientifically focused let me tell people a little bit about you so Dr. Anoop Kumar is a board certified in emergency medicine and holds a master's degree in management. He's the host of the Healing is Possible podcast and co-founder of Health Revolution, a movement that is building a complete ecosystem of healing. As an emergency physician, Dr. Kumar saw that many patients in the ER didn't believe healing was possible, even if many others had healed from the very same diagnosis. He started Health Revolution to share stories, techniques, and expertise of people who have found their own path to healing. Anup encourages you to rethink 
the relationship between mind and body in a way that informs solutions to real-world challenges, including healing diseases and upgrading the quality of our education. Hallelujah to that. Hallelujah to that. He communicates his vision through the lens of the three minds, a framework inspired by philosophy of the Avanta Vedanta. Now, am I saying that right? Advaita Vedanta. Yeah, I'm probably not saying that right. Not like the way you can say it. The application of this framework in healthcare is his health revolution, a movement demonstrating that healing is possible when we see ourselves fully. And we'll go into what that means by fully, because I think that a lot of people go, what do you mean if I see myself fully? He sees that the mind and body are not two distinct entities and he weaves them together through mind-body flow therapy to show how it is possible for people to heal from conditions thought to be incurable. Don't you love the word incurable, Anup? Yeah. Like yeah. in, in, the curer is in. I love that word. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Anup is an inspirational speaker and author of Michelangelo's Medicine and another book, Is This a Dream?, He's got a couple of websites, anupkumar.com and healthrevolution.org. And your YouTube channel is Beyond Mental Health with Anup Kumar, MD. And Healing is Possible on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. All righty. Well, obviously, you went into, you know, healing. As a young kid, what made you think about wanting to help people and be a doctor and all that sort of thing? We'll start there right at the beginning. Well, as a young kid, I think I was just being a kid, you know, experiencing my life. And at some point you get to that juncture where you were, the things that you're learning uh, formally, let's say in school, for example, are not completely aligning with what you're experiencing, right? So that every child reaches that juncture. We just don't name it in society. And, and we don't say it's okay to name that. And that is a very um, unique and important experience to recognize that the things that we are learning formally in formal education um, don't necessarily match up with our daily lives, all the experiences of our daily lives, right? And of course, there's no way because we're experiencing all the time and the volume of experiences that are always passing through us is far greater than anything we could kind of put into a concept or learn in a formal system. Um, but nevertheless, that's a really important um, difference to notice. And so I noticed that uh, it was particularly stark for me because I think at home, I was also learning um, this, you know, Indian philosophy. Uh, our family was very much into that. So for me, it wasn't just the, the school education um, and then my own kid experience like every kid has, but there was this other huge leg which was this Indian philosophy, which almost was the biggest one in some sense, because we were kind of immersed that and immersed in that in our family and, and studying it and, and experimenting with it, we could say in many ways. And that really led to this question of, wow, there's a lot that we're not talking about. You know, it was a huge amount of experience that we are just not talking about. And everybody pretends like it's okay. And everybody pretends like it's not even happening, all right? Then I always talk about it in terms of the subjective and objective experience, right? So when you're looking at something, the, the way we're taught is to keep studying what you're looking at. And it's only rarely that we're taught to look at 
the one who is looking. How is the person looking? What is the instrument that we're using to look? What are the assumptions that go into the viewing angle that we take, the cultural perspective that we, so much is there, at least 50% of what we are seeing is due to who is looking, how we are looking with what instrument we are looking. And we just ignore that for the most part. We just ignore that. We know it exists, which is why in science, we try to minimize bias, et cetera. But you only get to that really much later on. And even then we don't recognize just how much bias may be implicit in, in some of these perspectives that we're taking on. So that's really, that really was something I was grappling with internally, I'd say. And I wasn't very interested in school because of that, because I felt like it was, it was very incomplete. And I could see, you know, so many kids say, why do I have to know this? Why do I have to study this? What is the relevance of this in my life? And I get that because there's so much more in a person's life that we just don't talk about and we don't have a system of education for. Um, and so eventually when medical school came around, it basically got to a point where I was like, I can't keep quiet anymore, you know, like to not speak about this because now we're talking about people's lives. Now we're talking about, you know, living and dying. Now we're talking about pain and suffering. You know, it's not only just getting a grade on a test. It's not just, you know, if you get a promotion and a job, it's not just if you make your company more money or not, you know, it's, it's much deeper at this point. So that's when, you know, I started writing and speaking about these topics. You went into medicine because you obviously felt like you wanted to make a difference in the world. You wanted to help people. So you became a doctor and, um, you know, I've watched a couple of your other podcasts and something happened to you. Do you want to share with us what happened to you? So it sounds like, like me, you were full of questions, like thinking about the world deeply and looking for answers in our mainstream 3D world, you know, through medical school. I don't know if you found your answers there, but you did find some answers. Yeah. Well, you know, I kind of stumbled into medicine, actually. I didn't always know, kind of had a thought about it maybe as a kid, but didn't really know what it meant to be a doctor. I parents weren't physicians, you know, I didn't know what the lifestyle was like and everything that it entailed. Um, so I wasn't really sure that I would become a doctor. Uh, but yes, once it happened, and, and the other part about it is I really wasn't looking for that many answers um, in the world. It was very clear to me early on that, that most of the formal education is not really interested in these questions. Um, of a more complete view of life, a more complete view of, unless you get to the super highest levels that are, that are, you know, like decades into a person's career, they might start exploring that, although that's now changing. So um, it was more just like, okay, you know, I guess this is kind of the way this is, and I'm just going to um, see, let's just see where this goes. And so when I went to medical school, yes, I was, I thought, let me see, let me see what what we know about the human body and all these things. And we certainly know a lot. And again, it is the objective pole of knowledge, right? So it misses at least 50% of what a human being is because we're objectifying the human being and that has its strengths and it has its weaknesses. And, and we rarely talk about the weaknesses. Um, and we often think that we can't do anything about those. That's just the nature of science. And that's not true. We can do some things about those. So, uh, to answer your question, at the at some point during medical school, um, I was home. I think you're talking about when I was home on a break, um, and there was an experience of of just kind of leaving the body, we could say, or like an explosion. 
happening and the entire sense of um, identity changed. And there was kind of this, this moment of um, coming back or not coming back. So the body at that point can kind of left and the world had kind of been dropped off and it was very clear um, that there was, uh, it was either going forward and, and kind of leaving behind um, whatever had been happening in this lifetime uh, or maybe not, I guess I could to put it in a, in a brief way. Um, and in this case, it was maybe not. So there was a, there was a pause in that consideration and then kind of everything kind of came back the way it was after this kind of intense explosion. Um, and the way of perceiving had changed and the sense of identity and who I am, what I am, who a person is, what a person is, what the world is, all of these had changed experientially. Um, and fortunately for me, I did have many of the concepts for that because I'd been exposed to this for probably a couple of decades prior to this. You know, so I, I had a lot of the language and started to slowly put all this together. It was still, still took, you know, uh, 10 years or so to kind of learn to walk again in a sense and assimilate everything and start to talk coherently uh, about some of these things. How long ago did that happen when you had the out of body experience? That was uh, probably late twenties. I'm in my, I'm 44. So over, over 15 years. Okay. All right. You obviously had been looking into consciousness, who we are as conscious beings beyond the body before that. So that you said you had some knowledge and then you had that experience of leaving your body. Do you want to go into what you experienced more as you were experiencing yeah. a different perceptual experience? Yeah, the experience was something um, like sitting in the sun and uh and whenever uh, it's it's not nearly so vivid now. I remember it being quite vivid, but it's you know it's uh, it's changed over time, and my memory of it is not nearly you know like many of the details are are not there anymore. But the the description always seems absolutely perfect that it was sitting in the sun, and um, it was timeless. Um, it I wouldn't describe it as an out of body experience. Because to me, that, that gives too much credence to the body. It's not, it's not relative to the body. Um, it, I wouldn't describe it as something that's relative to the body. Although I know in, in a standard culture, that's, that is the kind of apt description. But just, just for clarity's sake, from, from my perspective, I would say that it's just there, there are different ranges of identity. And some ranges of identity um, have certain kinds of associations, like physical structure, which we call the body and other ranges do not. And what kind of body is carried or expressed depends on so many factors, you know, like our, our um, desires, what we wish to do, our intentions, you know, what we come into a lifetime with, all of this plays a role. So yes, that experience was something like sitting in the sun, it was timeless. And um, at some point in that timelessness, um, there was, uh, it was almost like sitting at a gate. Uh, there was the, the initiative to keep walking, to walk through the gate, uh, you know, figuratively speaking, walk through the great, 
gate. And as that was happening is when this, um, how do you say it? Uh, it's not a voice, but it was an intimation that, that, that came saying that, well, you know, this, something like this wouldn't necessarily be fair. You know, they're just, just think there's kind of more work to do. That kind of intimation was there. Um, and that caused hesitation. And it was that hesitation. It's, it's a little something like um, if you were crossing a street and then it, if you hesitate, then you might not go all the way through because there are cars coming both ways, you know, the danger isn't there, but just so to speak. So once you hesitate, you might actually come back. And that's, that's what happened. That, that intimation um, caused a hesitation and that hesitation is all it took. And that, uh, and the reason there was that strong rebound and implosion, re-implosion into the kind of physicalized world is because of um, the, the desires and the intentions and all the things that, you know, that are happening now is healing is possible and health revolution, this conversation and all of these things. So that force was there to, to draw and to reaccumulate that experience, you know, so that's how it happened. Yeah. <laughs> so many questions swirling in my mind. Yeah, we call it out of body. I'm going to pose this question to you. So you, you obviously intellectually understood that we are so much more than what we understand ourselves to be, like like infinitely more, and yet we come in as an infinite expression into a, into a physical life and we forget that creative infinite potential of our soul or consciousness or whatever. What do you think creates the veil of forgetfulness or as the last podcast, Samuel expressed it, the river of oblivion? What do you think creates that? Like how can the enormity of our soul squished into a physical body, like how do we forget who we are? It's the tendencies and the desires and the intentions and the wishes and impulses. All of these create are local currents. If we're to imagine, let's say something called reality as a uh, non-local potential, right? It's, it's not even a field, but we could say it's a potential. It's a non-local potential, meaning that it's not localized in one place. It is not in space or time. It is, it is that which represents itself as space and as time. So it's, it is the origin of what we call everywhere. It's the origin of what we call everything. It's the origin of what we call, you know, every place or every time. So if we're to think about that as potential, then any local movement or any modification of that now has a certain locality to it and it aggregates a certain experience locally. And that is the veil, right? That is what we call like a, a dimension or a space-time domain. Um, and you could have broad groupings of that might be planets, right? Might be eras and such. So it is, it is the impulse, it is the creative impulse. It is the ability to express simply because the nature of what we call reality is, is pure potential. And so expression is, is natural and spontaneous and endless. And so because of that, local reverberations of potential are kind of occluding in the vision, right? Almost like if you were underwater and it were perfectly still crystal clear water, you could probably see a certain distance. But as soon as you start circling the water all around you, 
right? If you had a friendly dolphin swimming all around you in circles, you wouldn't see more than a couple feet out, right? The water is still there. The ocean is still vast, miles upon miles, but the local movements of the ocean keep you in that local ocean world and that local identity. And so it's exactly that. Hmm, I've never heard it spoken like that before. You know, in the conversations that I've been having recently on the show, very galactic, talking to higher civilizational beings beyond this universe, uh, it was expressed that the reason that we have the veil of forgetfulness is that the soul contains so many electrons and then those electrons are sort of split like one ninth of the soul's electrons are um, expressing through a physical form and so that creates the veil because we don't have as much mental power or the, I don't know words I'm trying to find words for this stuff and so that creates the the veil but it is connected to the body um, so many people who have NDEs or out-of-body experiences express that as soon as they leave their body, they have this expanded awareness, but while in the body, they don't. So what do you think about that? Well, I don't think one has to be in a body or out of a body. That's why I, I think we can perhaps go beyond, explore language beyond out-of-body and in-body experience. Uh, the body itself, it's not that the body is creating something. The body itself is a creation. The body is a localizing process, right? There is no body per se. The body is constantly changing. Every minute you take a snapshot, it's changing. It's moving. At the subatomic levels, the, the particles are vibrating and dancing, right? At the, at the quantum level, the, the fields are always interfacing. So there is no body per se, like a picture, Right. It's, it's almost like, you know, if 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 we were at the beach and I took a picture of you and I'd say, oh, here here's Karen. It's like, well, that's not really Karen. There's no there's no person that exists like this. She's right here and she's constantly moving and evolving and, and so on and so forth. That is a concept. Right. That is kind of like something I want to hold on to. And so I, I need that. And that's true of the body in general. It's not the body. We're always bodying. We're always minding. Um, and so in terms of out of body or in body, that's, that's simply the, the language and the culture. Now, once the body is experienced as an experiencing, uh, a way, it, it is a representation of identity. Identity does not have to be body or not body. Identity does not have to be in body or out of body. That is strictly a first mind culture. That's strictly a materialist culture that has kind of imposed this kind of body dominance. It's either in the body or out of the body. You got to choose. And I don't accept that. I think identity can experience and express through body as a body uh, and as much more. And so it's, it's a, it's not just uh, out of body or in body. It is also with a body. We are a body and we are a mind and we are much more. And these are all true simultaneously. Um, and I think when that scene, then multiple experiences can stream simultaneously, right? Multiple um, layers of what we call reality can stream simultaneously because the mind and the identity is no longer restricted to a particular cultural story, a particular focus of attention, a particular kind of language. Um, and then that mind starts to create the language it needs to express, you know, that kind of experience. Yeah. So if we thought of ourselves more as not having a body, but experiencing a happening, 
like a fluid experience, as you say. Yeah. Um, then, and also, I, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, then healing would be a completely different concept. Um, yeah. 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 Like, okay, mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, go on. What were you going to say? What were you going to say? <laughs> um, one is that uh, I'm not saying... I'm not saying we shouldn't say that we have a body. We we can we can use the everyday language, but just within ourselves, we should be clear. That's that's the purpose for me of of having you know these conversations are so important because we're not saying that everybody has to change their language now and it becomes really awkward and everybody's stumbling over. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying use the standard language because we're in the society. But let's for those who are interested, let's start to look at the the nuance and we can say we have a body, but Really, you know, uh, the the identities experiencing as bodying, as minding, as spacing, as much more. Mm -hmm. um, and if that is the experience, then yes, healing changes because even experiencing that brings on healing immediately because there's a, a great release intention. Yeah. In the system that happens, right? Usually, what happens is again we've been given these ideas of compartments. Mm -hmm. The body is one thing; it's over here. Your your thoughts are kind of here, maybe they're kind of important. Your feelings, maybe not so important. You know, that was in the past, get over it, you know, and then, you know, just, you know, do the things, you know, jump through the hoops or, you know, the the school, your degree, your car, you know, your family, your retirement, you know, this, this, and we have these compartments that kind of tell us the progression of life. But again, these are all cultural. These are not fundamental to being human they're cultural superimpositions mm -hmm. that many times we forget our cultural and then we get encased within them and it creates tension because we fundamentally are not uh that right it's like it's like a, a river that's flowing and now you put up three or four dams guess what there's gonna be a lot of pressure in those dams right because mm -hmm. the river's nature is to flow free Mm -hmm. And now you put up the dams, there's going to be pressure. So we have so many dams in our society and that mm -hmm. causes a tension in the body that will lead to headaches, that will lead to anxiety, that will lead to lack of clarity and confusion, purpose of my life, um, back pain, so many things, right? I'm not saying that this is the sole cause of all these things, but these are deep causes of, of many of these and certainly contributory to all of these factors, and so when that sense of flow opens up in the identity and in experience, there's a lot of things, there's such fine adjustments in, for example, the musculature of the body, you know, the, the tension in the face, um, so many things, the, the quality of thoughts, the clarity of thoughts, the rapidity of thoughts, um, whether there are thoughts at all, whether thoughts are necessary in a particular context. You know, so many of these things that we generally don't consider in our society start to become available. And that is deeply healing because we're now the river that is flowing again. We're being ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautifully expressed. Um, Esther Hicks, you know, the teachings of Abraham has expressed it similarly. That, okay, I'm not yeah. aware. Are you not aware? Quite fast-flowing river of consciousness. And, okay. um, you know, one of their analogies is most humans are in this rowboat 
you know, and they think that success and um, achievement is about turning the boat and and paddling upstream against the flow. And if I work hard and struggle, yeah. you know, then I'll be successful. And they say, drop the oars and let the river just take you to where you want to go. Yeah, I, it's beautiful. And and that, you know, dam, it's like the limiting thoughts that we have is like the dam that is resisting the flow and causing that pressure, as you say, exactly. Beautiful analogy. Okay, so the question, I think we do need to change the language, actually. I think our language is really poor. We do have to come up with new words to, to yeah. explain this stuff. But the question that really I pose is you're still working as a, as a medical physician in emergency, are you? Yeah, like having understood all this stuff, because it's not the paradigm of the allopathic medical tradition, what made you stay inside that container? And how does, you know, how do your peers feel about what you believe and think and teach and speak about? Well, I think by, you know, being in emergency medicine, it's, you know, a lot of benefits in terms of uh, just the education and having the understanding and the knowledge base to speak about the intersection of these fields, right? It, it becomes very critical. And also what I'm saying in my view does not contradict um, allopathy. Um, what it does is it, it completes it. It puts a much bigger context around it, right? We know in allopathic medicine, and frankly, in every system of medicine, we know that that's not the whole story, right? And certainly in allopathy, we know that. We know it's not the whole story, but we just don't, don't know how it's not the whole story. And we don't know what to do about the fact that it's not the whole story. And we're not interested in even going there because of a lot of the incentives and payments and all those things are aligned with the current ways of doing things, right? But having said that, that doesn't mean that this contradicts allopathy, right? We can still do surgery in, in the right situations. We can still take medicines in the right situations. Now, I think we would need them far, far less if we were to understand a broader context about health and healing, surely. Um, but they're not, they're not uh, diametrically opposed for sure. Um, the other thing is by being in emergency medicine, um, it, it kind of almost forces me to do something about it, you know, um, because I could easily, and I have many times just talked about consciousness and just consciousness and talking about either ranges or levels of consciousness, or, you know, there can be many esoteric topics that one gets into. Um, and, I don't feel like I really need to do that so much. You know, I, I don't feel like, so my training is in emergency medicine. You know, I, um, I've been working in the ER. Um, I think that affords a certain perspective that, that I should use in a certain way. So I think being in the ER and staying clinical in that sense um, gives me that, that motivation to do something about healthcare because somebody needs to do something about healthcare. You know, many people, not just somebody, not just one person, many people are, we need many, many more people to do something and to really, I think, present this, articulate this in a crystal clear way, you know, of what is missing, what we can do about it and, and how we get to that next step. So emergency medicine has been critical in that sense as well. And then of course, just fundamentally in terms of uh, having a career while doing this as well, it's also been um, key. And it's also, um, it's, it's a practice, you know, to talk about these things is one thing, but in the ER, it's always a practice. 
right? It's not mastery. It's not, well, it's done, right? It's, it's consciousness and a person has understood consciousness. And there's no such thing as a person who has understood consciousness. Consciousness is always evolving, playing, right? It's, and so how we express that, how, how we um, kind of hold that, how we move with that, you know, in a situation where a person's uh, life may be on the line or they're suffering or, you know, all of these things come together in the emergency department. So that's another opportunity for myself uh, as growth. So it's, it's not always easy. It's not that I'm, I'm voluntarily saying that, yes, I'm going to stay here. And because of all the benefits I just listed, um, sometimes it's very difficult. But in spite of that, I see, in fact, sometimes it's more difficult because of that sensitivity and because of that vision. You know, sometimes it's easier if, if sometimes the, the blinders are on a little bit more, you know, and if everything is a little bit more numb. But when everything's wide open, then it's, it can actually be more difficult. And yet... I still see all of the benefits that I mentioned. So perhaps that's why that's also still continuing. Okay. So when somebody's coming, because emergency is about emergencies like car accidents and heart attacks and people dying and lots of, uh, I guess you can't really practice what you're speaking about. Like you wouldn't say to somebody, just remember you're not the body. <laughs> you're not only the body. Sorry. Yeah. But how do your peers feel about, you know, think about what, you're presenting i mean do they engage in the conversation are they like yes this is fascinating or are they like ah oh, just get on with it you know like yeah. where are yeah. they yeah a lot of this is actually not about what we say so even even in um you know in conversations like this we might say we are not only a body and because everybody has come with a certain mindset you know their needs are taken care of the people have eaten they've used the restroom they've slept you know, they have this time to dedicate and then they listen and there's a certain receptivity. But somebody who's coming in in pain, they think there's something dreadfully wrong. They have no time. They may, they're short on money. You know, we don't talk about a person not being the body. That's not the, that's not the time for that. So the practice, that's why I said the practice is always evolving. And the practice is really seeing a person as they are and meeting a person as they are. You know, so in, in the ER, it's, it's always that. And then Outside of the ER, it's, it's developing and building that system so that even the practices can change perhaps in the ER. Um, in terms of how people take it, it's, it's across the board. It varies across the board. Um, when I was in my training, most people, my supervisors didn't understand what I was saying, understandably. I, I get why they didn't because I was just, who knows what I was saying. I was trying to, it made sense within myself, but... As I heard the words, I could tell it wasn't making sense. And so I was just, you know, just trying to communicate. So at that point, not much, not many people really received much of it. Since then, you know, I've done meditation groups at the hospital. I've, I've conducted meditation groups at the hospital. Uh, we've done some like discussion groups at, at a few different hospitals that I've worked at. Those are generally received well. Um, Many or most of my colleagues know that I've written a couple books and some of them have one of the books. Some of them might have two of the books and they know that this guy thinks differently or has some different kinds of ideas. And they'll say, say, man, like you really, you're really talking about this stuff. And, but for most part, few people are really interested in what exactly are you saying and what do you mean? You know, that, that next level. Um, and that's, you know, everybody, everybody in their own, 
in their own time. But there are a couple of people for sure. I've had a couple of physicians that I've talked to uh, much longer in private conversations, you know, and that ask these questions and wonder about how this connects with medicine and all of that. Um, I found uh, nurses also tend to be um, more receptive, I find, um, to this because they also have a more kind of whole whole person approach, right? The training is more of a whole person training. Um, so to answer your question, it, it really ranges across the entire spectrum. Yes, God bless the nurses. I've had many nurses come to my courses and come to my private practice and yeah, to discuss this stuff. And I've heard so many beautiful stories uh, from nurses. Um, one that comes to mind is a, she was on a night shift and there was an old lady dying and, um, and she was just at her station and she was praying for the old lady and asking the angels to, you know, help her transition in a peaceful way. And as she left her night shift, she went around to um, check on the patients and the old lady who was pretty uh, incapacitated at that stage, you know, found the strength to reach out and grab her hand. And she said, thank you for sending the angels to me. <laughs> oh my God, it makes me cry. You know, she heard, she saw, she heard her prayer. And then soon after that, she transitioned. There's just been so many beautiful stories like that. God, I love nurses. I love nurses. Anyway, <laughs> I hope doctors are like that too. Oh, yeah. like, there, there are many yeah. doctors. Like that. You know, it's as one physician in your immediate practice environment, you're not meeting that many physicians. But when you look across the country and across the world, thousands of doctors who are interested in this. They might not always be public about it. That's another right. thing mm -hmm. is that in public conversations, many times it's crickets chirping, but behind <laughs> the scenes, you'll get like, I get a lot of, I get a lot of emails from physicians um, and there'll be a conversation about, you know, we weren't able to have this kind of conversation or thanks for opening this up. You know, we right. could never have this in the hospital and things like that, because there's such a fear of being unscientific. There's a right. fear of being irrational um, again, because of the the undereducation that we have all received, this is not yeah. this does not contradict rationality. In fact, this raises the level of rationality, and it would raise the level of science if we only understood, again, that we are looking at the instrument and the subject, and not just studying the object as an independent entity. Yeah, I hear you absolutely. And of course, somebody that's been doing this for years, having this conversation, and was you know in the medical profession working. I think he was the head of a hospital was your friend Deepak, right? Deepak. Uh, but he received so much ridicule in the day from his peers. Um, yeah. You know, years ago, probably about 30 years ago, he was out in Australia doing a talk in a big conference center here. And I took a girlfriend who was just on the fringe of spiritual understanding to see Deepak because he was very scientific. But he went off that day in his talk. I loved it. But it was so fascinating. So many people... He talked about how we're all holograms and the reality of beam me up, Scotty, when we understand that we are living in a holographic universe, that we can, you know, teleport just like beam me up, Scotty. He was like going there. And I was like, whoa, Deepak. And people just got up and they were walking out in droves because they just couldn't understand what he was talking about. I've never heard him speak like that again publicly. <laughs> Not that I've seen all his public talks, but uh, yeah, I think that he thought he needed to like, come way back if he was going to talk to the public he needed to come back you know from those far out concepts how did you meet him 
we met after a talk that he gave. Um, he was signing books and we started to chat. And then that's how it started. The conversation started and it continued after that. Was Were you reading him before you met him? Was he one of your teachers? Yes, I had, because of his, his background was very similar in, in mm -hmm. some sense, mm -hmm. um, because obviously um, being a physician, and being of Indian background, mm -hmm. uh, but also the the background in Vedanta, you know, the mm -hmm. Indian philosophy that I think was was really a clincher. So this combination of Vedanta and medicine um, was key. Um, and so at that point, um, I was I started to watch some of his talks on YouTube. I guess some of his public talks. Mm -hmm. and that's when I went to see him speak, and that's how we started talking. Yeah. Well, I congratulate you for staying within the system because the system needs to change because the system is the dominant system of healing on our planet in every country, right? The allopathic container. And I've seen it so many times within healers and energy workers that when the shift hits the fan, so to speak, they get cancer or some diagnosis that's terminal. They'll go into the allopathic system and they'll have the chemotherapy and do all that Um and I'm like, really? You know, like there's so much trust in that system. If you really get sick, then you've got to, I've had, you know, my ex-husband's partner, my daughter's stepmother, she was diagnosed with the colon cancer. Her mother had died of colon cancer. And she was very sure she didn't want to go into the allopathic system, but everyone around her, including my ex-husband, you know, begged her to do it because she was going to die if she didn't. So there's just so much trust in this system. And yet I feel the system is very limited in its understanding of healing. Yeah, I think all all systems have their limitations. And I think hopefully we can get to a place where we can recognize the benefits of each one and where, where the physicians or the health professionals in each system can see what the value is in each system. I mean, that has to be the future of medicine. We call it integrative medicine now, but um, it's not fully integrative because we have different models of anatomy right? The allopathic model of anatomy, the anatomy textbook I had in medical school, it's very different than um, what Ayurveda considers anatomy. Ayurveda understands physical anatomy, but it has a much subtler view of anatomy. Same with traditional Chinese medicine, same with yoga, you know? So you can't have the same species with different models of human anatomy and just sit back and pretend like it's okay. That's not okay. We have to understand why and how there are these different models and how they correlate. And only once we understand that, can we really say we have integrative medicine. And in fact, at that point, it's just medicine. It's not, it's not integrative even anymore. So uh, integrative medicine right now is still very early. You know, it's in very early stages. Um, and we have a lot of reconciling to do among the different models of anatomy and physiology before we can truly claim that kind of deep knowledge about healing. And, and we're getting there. Yeah, you speak about the different um, traditions of the healing, like Chinese medicine and Ayurveda. About 10 years ago, I had a friend on the show, a doctor, Indian descent. He worked in the emergency in the UK, worked in a hospital, big hospital in the UK. He thought it was chaotic. He was exploring this stuff. He came out to Australia, worked in on a big hospital in Sydney, Australia. He just thought it was chaotic. And he said something to me on the show, I was on radio at the time, that made me think. He said, Western medicine is the only system of medicine that doesn't include energy. 
in their understanding of medicine. Like Ayurveda looks at the energy body, Chinese medicine looks at the energy and Western medicine. And I thought, wow, yeah, that's true, right? It yeah. doesn't include the energy, like the energy of the body. It just only looks at the molecules. Hmm. Because, and what most people don't recognize is that we have a philosophy of materialism that is implicit in allopathy. And most physicians um, don't know that, that we are taught a particular philosophy, um, but nobody would ever say we took philosophy classes in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, medical school. But yes, we did. We took implicit philosophy classes all along and that make you start to think that a human being is made up of a bunch of small parts and those small parts together somehow make up something called mind and make up something called life. And I just don't think that's true, you know, but we're never led to, we're made to think that's a scientific view. It's not a scientific view. It's a philosophical opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not that these traditions that are thousands of years old just didn't know that. They're not just guessing, right? So the, the understanding, the relationship between body and mind um, is not there in the current system, in the modern allopathic system. Mm -hmm. That's what's so critical to realize. Um, and in fact, sometimes we, we denigrate that view, you know, the idea that it's energy and, um, but it, it's really, uh, it's what we don't know. We tend to kind of ridicule and, and we try to put it away because, you know, it kind of validates the sense of expertise, but I think we can grow a lot as a system. We start to recognize that again, that very same thing, subjective objective, we can look at it from the other side and not lose any scientific rigor and perhaps even increase our scientific rigor. Um, so that's the key to recognizing uh, what is called energy or chi or prana mm. or, and so many subtle levels of that too. You know, mm -hmm. it's not even just like one, one block, one thing that we just call energy. There's, there's so much more to all of this. I remember listening to Deepak years ago and he said that his colleagues were um, debating the fact that there was no such thing as mind-body connection. And he would say, well, if there's no such thing, how do I wiggle my toes? Anyway, that was something that stuck in my mind. How do I yeah. wiggle my toes? Uh, if there's no such thing as mind-body connection in medicine. You know, it's interesting. I have a guy coming on the show in a couple of days. I've slotted him, I've slotted him in because I usually only do one a week. Lawrence, what's Lawrence's last name? Blair. He made a documentary years ago. And, and a part of his documentary was this, Indonesian healer who talked about how he could um you might have seen it it's a very old documentary I think it was made in either the 70s or the 80s and that part of it they called him DJ which wasn't his name but um and his masters were in spirit that taught him but he would use the chi energy the yin yang chi energy and he would focus it and he would have like this chi coming out of his body like electricity and he would um and he could create fire with his hands just by directing the chi and have you seen that i haven't seen it myself oh, but send it to you. it's fascinating and lawrence is in his 80s now so he lives in bali he's a friend of a friend and he's going to come on and talk about his life and and making the documentary but that part of the documentary just fascinated me uh the understanding of this chi energy and how we you know focus and direct it what we can do with it it's, and he was stopping bullets in his hands by focusing the chi out of his hands the bullet would go and sort of hit this force field that he was creating and not penetrate his hands. Amazing. Amazing, isn't it? So you speak about this stuff and you're in an ER. 
are you practicing it with patients as well or are you practicing it on yourself? How has understanding who we are as conscious beings, infinite creative potential, how has that helped you help yourself? Have you healed yourself through the mind of ailments? Or I think the, the main thing is, again, the sense of ease in everyday life. You know, to me, the the question is not like disease or not disease, you know, or like diagnosis or no diagnosis or like high blood pressure or no high blood pressure. Everything's on a continuum, you know, disease, that's why disease is a dis hyphen ease, right? There is some kind of dis-ease that is associated with disease um, in most cases. And so it, it's about that decompartmentalization. It's about that integration. It's about that ease. It's about that flow. It's about feeling comfortable in you know different ranges of conversation or the different environments um, and not feeling like there's a contradiction from you know the science and the philosophy and the spirituality and the mysticism and you know remember these are all human inventions we created those categories that nature doesn't really care about our creations and what we call them nature flows and the person that experience what they are what they are as this flow um, can simply say, okay, these people call this range of flow philosophy. You know, these people call this range of flow science. You know, when, when we look at this and when we try to eliminate one pole of it, for example. Um, so it, it, I think that simplicity comes that is associated with an ease in the body. And that to me is the deepest healing or pretty close to the deepest healing. And the deepest healing is simply knowing what we are. You know, at, at, on one hand, healing that we need to talk about in our society is healing from so many diseases, which we do on our healing is possible podcast. That's the YouTube channel, by the way, it's healing is possible channel. And if you look it up, you'll see stories of people who are healing from rheumatoid arthritis, who are healing from cancer, who are healing from severe heart disease after being told they need bypass surgery, um, who are healing from schizophrenia, healing from depression, healing from multiple sclerosis, healing from all kinds of things that we say it's not really possible. Um, and, and then once they heal, people, the physicians don't understand it. And in most cases, never write it up as a case report. Um, so we need to talk about that. We need to talk about how this, you know, you mentioned earlier about mind-body. Somebody said that there's no connection between mind and body. I would say there's no difference. There's no, there are no two such things to begin with. That, again, is a cultural superimposition because everybody started focusing on the shared perceptual experience we called body in this culture. That's a cultural phenomenon. That's not a human beings across all time kind of phenomenon. And so um, once you start to consider the perspective that mind and body are not two things, or the shared perceptual aspect might be what we call body and the part that's less amenable to public view might be what we call mind. Then there's much more of that flow of experience and now all of a sudden you're opening up new mechanisms because that means you can access the body directly right before that the body was something out there it's a piece of meat it's a bunch of atoms right i have no access to it i'm just this there's a bunch of thoughts well you know i'm at the women fancy of the of the mechanical world the mechanical world created me after all everybody has told me my whole life right? This is the state of education. It's, it's a really an abominable state. It's a sorry state of education in our society right now. 
Um, but if we can start to realize that these two are, or at least consider these two are non-different, then we access new ways of directly accessing the body, relaxing the body. And as many of these people have shown on the podcast, they begin to heal in many ways, right? It doesn't mean you can't use allopathy. I'm an allopathic physician. I think we do great work in the emergency department, but know when that is the way to go, right? And let's, let's create a system where we prevent people from getting to that and where their health and healing potential gets to such a level and raises to such a level that it's not, we're not preventing, we're not trying to prevent emergencies, but their potential is so high that those things aren't happening as much anymore. You know, so those are the things that we're talking about. That's what we call mind body flow theory, the mind flowing as the body, just as water flows and patterns as ice, right? Ice looks different, feels different. We may not say it's water, but when we look closely, we're like, wait a second, that's just water. If the water uh, was blue, or if you added some food coloring to the water that was blue, guess what? The ice will be blue. Right. And so similarly with mind and body is a hypothesis that we can use. Yeah. Once you understand that you, you take back your power over your body, because something that I've noticed over the years is, you know, when you get sick, you just completely give your power to the physician. Like, you know, about my body more than I do, like, because you're the learned physician and I'm clueless. I'm wearing this body. It's as close to me as it could be. And yet I'm clueless about it. But if you understand that this, this experience that I'm wearing is happening, <laughs> is an experience is a, of my mind, then it becomes, it, you know, it comes back to you. It's like how you're thinking right. and what you're believing and how you're flowing your energy is how you're right. creating your body right. in every moment. Right. And it's not in the hands of some physician. It's now in your hands. Yeah. And I think it's important to... Uh, say that this is we're not talking about a dissociated fantasy state right so that's what when these ideas are first heard because of the degree of undereducation in our society across the board for mm -hmm. for lay people for experts for everyone because of the degree of undereducation it can be easy to simply dissociate from the entire medical system as it is and say i'm just going to think myself better etc and and there's a there's a long path to go between where we are and where we have to be so I'm not suggesting that anybody enters like a fantasy world and, and believes that they can think something and it's immediately going to change. That can and does happen in some cases. We have we have cases we have where we show that. But yeah, sure. We're not I've done it many times. Which to that, right. But I've been I, I think diagnosed a, with cancer and I was going through a bad, you know, I was stressed to the max and it was just a wake-up call for me. It's like, oh, I've got to clean up my thinking because I am totally like yeah. hating life at the moment. I was hating life. I was just hating everything about life. And then I got this diagnosis and I'm like, that diagnosis is a product of what I've been thinking, you know, justifying it. And I just cleaned up my thinking and it went away. I've done that so many times. I can't tell you how many yeah. times I've done that. And that's where I think it's, it's really, uh, we need to say that this is a possibility. There is something here. That's what we call mind body flow theory. Mm -hmm. And everyone is at a different kind of step in that exploration. And some people need help. Each person needs to be met where they are. And we need to provide those resources so that each person can make that journey. It, it's really a societal journey from the level of education we have now to a higher degree of understanding. Yes. It's all about the education. So what's the dream? Nope. Is the dream like having every child at school understand the power of their consciousness 
Is it putting this education in every school and every university? Is that the dream? I'm putting words in your mouth. Yeah, I mean, the dream to start with is to simply share these stories of healing, to just bring it, you know, right back to ground level, to say that, you know, these stories of healing that we hear, um, they're not these one-off miracle healings. You know, uh, to be to be honest, I feel like we're scared of these in healthcare. Mm-hmm. We're, we're scared of them. Like we won't talk about them because we say that's false hope. False or hope. And they say it, you're in remission. So if you get cured from cancer, you're not cured from cancer. You're just in remission. It's like the possibility of cure is not in there. It's not right. in their paradigm. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's that fear of talking about healing. You know, we, we don't talk about healing, actually. For the most part, we talk about treatment. Right. Um, and that be- that is because, again, of our incomplete understanding of human anatomy, because we substitute a body for a human being, mm-hmm. um, and because of the incomplete view of physicality and incomplete understanding of the philosophy that we've been taught. Um, and so because of that, healing is not doesn't fit for the most part. And even when it does fit, there are some programs that talk about healing. There is a little scientific understanding with breadth and comprehensiveness. You know, it's, it's kind of made to fit kind of nicely, but really looking beyond the subatomic level, how does that correlate with levels of mind? You know, what is the seamless view and integration of all that? That's, that's really not being taught in medical programs, and it's absolutely necessary. Um, so until then, sharing the stories and not being afraid to say, hey, look, we're not saying this is going to happen for everyone but we're also not going to pretend like this doesn't happen because it's happening all over the place. It's happening every day. People are healing from things that we say that will not heal or are unlikely to heal. And the more people know that such healing is happening, the more it will happen because they will try new things. They will try different things. And it's our responsibility in healthcare and my responsibility, I feel to do that, communicate that in a responsible way where we say, yes, try some new things. Also talk to your physician. You know, you don't have to keep your physician in the dark. You don't have to throw out everything. Talk to your physician and be like, hey, I want to try this too. Um, I heard this, this, and work for this person. Something else worked for another person. Mm-hmm. And that's slowly how we kind of bring up that level of undereducation. Yeah, and change the paradigm around healing because you're right. It's like I remember when I got pregnant, everyone had, everyone wanted to tell me their horrific birth stories, right? As if giving birth could never be a nice experience. It was always going to be this horrific. And I remember saying, stop, you know, like, stop, please don't tell me your horrific birth stories. But that's the same with, oh, yeah, my mother died of cancer and my father died of heart disease. And and, like we all want to talk about how terrible disease is instead of talking about healings, you know. And, and yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah. yeah. It, it, It reinforces the familiarity. Right. You know, for better or for worse, we are familiar with disease. For better or for worse, right. we as a society are comfortable with the idea of disease. We are not comfortable okay. with the idea of healing because our knowledge base is not there. And so we tend to avoid it. And naturally, it, it does not show up as much. Yeah. All right. We've obviously got a couple of YouTube channels. Healing is possible. We need to get everybody over there, as many people as possible. So go over to Healing as Possible on YouTube and press the like and subscribe buttons <laughs> and tell your friends about it. Tell everybody you know that's struggling with some sort of healing crisis <laughs> to get people over there. But, yeah, I was looking at your other 
YouTube channel, which was the one that I was, um, because you've got a Yeah, that one we're, we're kind of migrating over. So that's going to be going away. The main one is the healing is possible channel. Okay. And that's where the podcast is hosted. Yes. Alrighty. And it's also on, on Spotify, Apple, and uh, Google, but the video podcast is on YouTube. Yeah, I so agree. We need to get these healing. Well, that's what I attempt to do with the show as well, get the healing stories out there. All right, yeah. so the three minds framework, do we want to go into it? Do you want to talk about what that is? That it's Because um, I've heard you say on other shows that it was your attempt to put into an understanding what you experienced and your understanding and you've come up with the three minds framework. Yeah. Well, I have, I have about five minutes left. Oh, okay. Uh, so time is happy to, up. would you like me to get into it quickly? And yeah, go get into it? it quickly. Sure. The three minds framework is, yes, it's exactly that. It, it's, it was an attempt to say, how do we, how do I tell a story that can integrate the different fields of knowledge and give a fair shake to the full nature of the human being, the full nature of the world, of what we call reality of the universe, an actual more complete perspective of what's going on, what this is, right? Without uh, shortchanging any one particular field, without saying that one field is right and the other one is wrong. And that's what the Three Minds Framework is. And it basically says that what we call reality is it's not an independent, fundamental, external, physical reality. Reality expresses itself through an observer and an observed phenomenon, right? Through a subject and an object. And, or what we can say through a perceiving identity and whatever it is that um, identity perceives. So here, um, the listener might be perceiving our faces and our voices and the listener themselves have a nervous system, which is the subject. And depending on that nervous system, because it's a human nervous system, they're interpreting this information in a particular way. Another species would interpret it in a completely different way. All right. Another species may not even be focusing on what we're focusing on, whether it's a face or something else. They might be focusing on something entirely different. They may be seeing something entirely different. So <clears throat> the idea that what we see as the physical world is reality is... Most people don't subscribe to that anymore. They just say that that's kind of consensus. It's the, it's the agreed upon, it's the useful perhaps kind of reality. So this idea that <clears throat> reality is not fundamentally physical and external, but rather what I would call consciousness or intelligence um, as the nature of reality, that is the premise of the three minds framework. And when this intelligence localizes, when it takes on a boundary, you asked, how do we get local experiences? <clears throat> excuse me, how do we get local experiences? And I said, you know, these perturbations or these, these local distillations, these intentions, those are all forming the boundary of identity. And that's when I get my world, my vision, my view. I start to see books and, you know, uh, ceilings and fans and all of these things. Why do I see localized objects and things? Because now I myself have taken myself to be localized. And as I am, so I see the world not just as a belief, I'm saying the physical world, what we call the physical world, people don't realize the extent to which when we take on identity, we perceive a particular world. When you sleep, the world that you perceive goes away, right? I'm not saying 
the world itself goes away, but how you perceive the world is not no, no longer existing because your identity has changed. When you dream, you've taken on a new identity. Guess what? Your world changes according to that identity that you take on. You wake up again, you assume this identity, guess what? You get this version of this world again. So I'm not saying any of these worlds disappear in and of themselves. I'm simply pointing out that every human being across time has always had the direct experimental evidence that what they perceive as a world is directly and profoundly related to their sense of identity. And we just seem to ignore this because, again, of the cultural bias towards materialism. When this sense of identity begins to delocalize, this is when the view opens up and we might say the fun starts and perhaps the trouble starts too, right? When this view opens up, when the sense of identity starts to open up, when now the person, and I'm not just talking about an out-of-body experience, I'm talking about when the sense of identity is no longer dependent on the body. It's no longer classified as in the body or out of the body or around the body, but the body simply is part of the experience of identity. Then to that extent, the sense of a boundarized distinct world also changes. Yeah. And the, the sense of a, only a particular room or only a particular dimension of space time is seen through. Right? These, are, these are experiences, again, relative to the identity. So when the identity is opened up, guess what? What we call world or worlds also open up correspondingly. Yeah. And this is the second mind view, the sense of identity, sense of who a person is, what a person is, what the world is. Everything starts to change from the second mind view. And the third mind view, we can say, is pure potentiality. It is prior to any kind of localizing, prior to the differentiation of space-time and or dimensions and or rooms or people or civilizations, all of this prior to that is this third mind. And the, the hypothesis here is that all three of these coexist depending on the nature of identity. So it's not that one is right and the others are wrong, but it's rather that depending on identity, there will be one's own theories, one's own mathematics, one's own physics, you know, one's own beliefs, one's own capabilities, different kinds of civilizations, all according to the level of identity at which these exist. Yeah, I'm, you know, we talk a lot about on the shows, our multidimensional nature, and that aspects of our higher self group soul, whatever you want to call that soul, um, is expressing in, in many different forms, both as physical form and spiritual form. And when you open awareness, you get in contact with these other aspects of yourself. Like you could be, you know, a highly evolved being living in a civilization 3,000 years in the future. You could be your past life. You could be your spiritual self as a spirit guide. You could be, you know, like we are multidimensional, multi-identified, not just this identity. And yeah, that kind of sits inside that m2 doesn't it mine too all yes. those identities like so many yeah. identities not just this one identity but yes. you know as i listen to you speak about identity uh, uh i often because i'm aging i often talk to my guides about aging and they've said to me you know aging is more about what your belief system than it is about anything else and yeah we identify with age and this age means we look like this and you know like we're creating through our attachment to identity we're creating this the age in our body and everything through that yeah that attachment to the identity of my age and yeah all that yeah 
this is a much bigger conversation uh, that we could go into, but yeah, you've got to go. Are you running any courses in this? You're doing the podcast. You're working as a emergency physician. Yeah. Are you doing any well, one-on-ones or running any courses? Not right now. I've done those in the past. Uh, we are working on developing some programming now, um, but really it's, it's to kind of get out the story that healing is possible by sharing these stories mm-hmm. and to develop a program to, that people can enroll in um, to facilitate such healing. And that's really what we're working on developing now. So, uh, you know, we're looking for people to join our team. So if anybody's interested, you know, you can contact us at healing at healthrevolution.org. Um, if you'd like to help make that a reality. Yeah. I mean, even courses, you know, educating physicians, educating, I, I, I know it's a kind of closed system that thinks it knows everything. So it doesn't need educating, but there are young, you know, sparky guys like you that are all over the world that are into it. Yeah, we've got to change yeah. the paradigm of healing. Anoop, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Such an honor to speak with you today. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. I appreciate it. There's lots to come from you. Thank you. What a beautiful conversation with Anoop. There was so much more we could talk about, but it was late where he is. He has to go and tend to his family, have dinner, <laughs> you know, I kept him up. Uh, he's a busy guy. But, yeah, Healing is Possible. The Healing is Possible podcast. So head over to Healing is Possible to hear stories of healing. It's so important that we, uh, yeah, spread this, that healing is possible. Absolutely. I've seen it. I've done it. There were so many stories I wanted to share with him. Because I know healing is possible. Because I thought about this stuff like him deeply studied healing and many uh, I didn't study pharmaceuticals the only thing I didn't so I studied naturopathy started many energy healing arts and uh, then you know came back to deliberate creation which is what I teach that um, not only am I creating the desires that I want I'm creating everything about every aspect of my life including my body including what's happening you know I'm participating that in accordance to what I think and so if things go wrong, I can change that simply by changing the way I think. How simple is it? It's so incredibly simple. And yet when it comes to the practice of it, we get so stuck in our patterned thought forms. Um, you know, they kind of play like a broken record on repeat and repeat and repeat and then shaking ourselves out of those limiting paradigms limiting ideas of ourselves and what's possible is the work and so listening to stories of possibility you know life is a journey of infinite possibility is what I've got on my um you know card and everything on the website what the guides say life is a journey of infinite possibility like listening to stories of these infinite possibilities is like breaking us out of those limiting habitual patterns of thinking that keep us stuck in a particular identity in a particular reality of creation, which includes healing. You know, I wanted to tell him a story about, I was at a wedding. I think it was a wedding. It was a few years ago now uh, with some friends and this friend of a friend of mine, he was a makeup artist in the you know, movie industry. He fell over. We were all drunk as usual, young, we we're all young in our twenties and split his eye. I think it was his eye. I remember where but he split his face open it was a huge gash and people were screaming going ah get the ambulance take him to hospital and he was drunk and happy he didn't mind and I was pretty tipsy and happy and I knew that healing was possible so I whipped him upstairs to the bathroom and I 
sewed up his um, cut in my mind. I sewed it up. Instead of taking him to hospital and having it physically sewed up, and the cut, you know, became stopped. He stopped bleeding and put a Band-Aid on it and off we went. But he was happy enough. He wasn't in a panic or worried. <laughs> he was drunk enough. But he was like, oh, yeah, it'll be right. She'll be right. And I knew I could do it. And I did it. And I've I've seen that done because I've seen that done. Because when I was a young energy healer, I was asking the guides to show me how healing is possible physically. Because all the stuff I was doing was psychic stuff, right? Looking inside the body and going in there and changing things with my um, with my mind. But I wasn't seeing anything happen on the physical body. And my daughter became the participant in that and she gashed her foot open and some pipes that were being dug up in the backyard. She had this massive gash on her foot and she was screaming and carrying on. And I threw her on the top of, I was in the shower at the time, so I washed her foot from all the dirt that was on it, threw her on the top of the, t- the seat of the toilet, put my hands on it and just thought to myself, I need to stop the bleeding to stop her from crying. And I had taught her this technique it was a technique I'd learned in a healing course to go up and command a healing from the universe or God. And um, that's basically what I did. I just said, you know, I just commanded the healing. But I noticed that I couldn't feel the blood under my hand. So I took my hand off almost immediately to see what where the blood was. And the, and the cut had sealed instantly like that. Like healing's possible. And it's interesting. The time... The amount of time it takes to heal is not dependent on the space-time continuum. It's dependent on the alignment of energy. So when you understand healing is possible and that it becomes your your belief and your knowing, then healing becomes timeless and you can just heal things instantly. I've done it many times and I still continue to do it because accidents happen. You fall over, you hit your head, and I find the more I suffer, the longer it takes to heal. So recently I fell down, we've had a lot of rain in Sydney. I fell down the slippery stairs outside. They were all moldy. It had been raining and whoa, I went for a big fall and landed on my ass. Luckily I've got lots of flesh on my ass. But I was in pain, but I was suffering because I was, it hurt and I was screaming and going, ow. But I was thinking, you idiot. You knew that the, you know, I was beating up on myself because I was thinking, be careful going down those stairs. Be careful going down. Like I had thought many times, don't slip. Don't slip. <laughs> That's why I created it, right? Focused on it. And so I was beating myself up for being so silly. And when you do, I noticed that the pain stayed. Normally when I fall over and hurt myself, I'll experience the pain, but then I'll just put myself into the breath and breathe and silence my mind, just go into meditation and just bring myself out of that crazy chaotic sort of like shock and bring myself down into a a meditative peaceful state and the pain just melts away and the healing happens like whatever damage you've done to yourself. Like I've noticed I've not had bruises or whatever come because just healing happens immediately when you put yourself in that flow state as we talked about with another that flow state. But I think that what he was talking about was instead of, you know, it's it's about teaching you to be in that flow state more often so that you don't get sick and, and need healing so that you create the reality that you want uh, in a peaceful, loving, joyful way and enjoy your life and you're relaxed, you're at peace, you're enjoying whatever you're enjoying, you're not in resistance, you're not building dams against the flow of consciousness 
as he said, yeah, and life is good. And so we don't need to have healing because we don't create the uh, dis-ease in our bodies. Beautiful conversation, beautiful conversation. Yeah, and as I said to him, I've got Lawrence Blair coming up on the show this week as well who made that documentary with DJ about the healer. I put it on my Facebook page. I just loved that bit. His documentary was like five hours long. I think it was a BBC documentary years ago, probably in the 80s. It came out. He's worked with Jerry Hall and all sorts of people. Fascinating guy, educated in Britain, lived in France and Mexico. What was the name of his documentary? Emmy Award winning documentary. Yeah, Ring of Fire. That's what it was called. PBS and BBC TV adventure series called The Ring of Fire, winner of two Emmy Awards, aired over 60 nations, introduced by Richard Gere. Yeah, so Lawrence, who's 80, living in Bali, he's coming on the show to speak to us about it, so that'll be fun. Uh, But there were many miracles in his documentary, including the guy, the, the healer DJ that was focusing his chi. Fascinating. Healing is possible. Healing is possible. Know it. Whatever you're going through, whether it's emotional, mental, physical, it's all possible when we access that part of us that is that um, bliss, divine essence, whatever you want to call it, consciousness. Alrighty. Who's coming up in the inner sanctum? Mm, I'll put someone tentatively coming up next month. I had to change the dates uh, because things were happening, so hopefully she can do it. And that is Marina Seren, who... um, I've had on the show. Everyone that comes into the Inner Sanctum as a guest speaker is somebody I've put on the shows. And uh, if you've been watching the shows for a while and you have favourites, you know, tell me who you'd like to come and meet because the Inner Sanctum is an opportunity for you to meet the people that I've had on the shows. Uh, maybe next year I'll get Anup back and you can meet him and quiz him and we can hear about his progress, how he's going, maybe if he wants to. Uh, yeah, so uh, I always put people in the inner sanctum that I've had on the shows and, you know, so you can meet them and ask them questions and on the Zoom and get to know them more uh, intimately rather than just passively watching them speak. Uh, that's what the inner sanctum is all about, the inner sanctum. So if you want to come on Zoom and meet some of the people coming up, including me, I'm on once a month chatting and uh, telling you my stories. Um Join, just go to karensway.com slash inner sanctum and pop your email in and you can, um, I'll send you out the Zoom link when we meet. Thank you again for listening and watching and sharing the shows and please subscribe and tell your friends to subscribe. And I only say this, it's not the numbers game, you know, life is not a numbers game. But it is for when I do reach out to people who are quite well known, they always ask me how many subscribers I've got. And, you know, like, it's you know i'm on many platforms not just youtube i think i have more audio listeners than i do on youtube so i don't even know but they want to see a number you know they're numbers game so that's why i say please subscribe because it helps me reach out to people and get people on the shows if you're a smaller show they don't bother you know some people don't bother i love that Anup Anup came came on um yeah some people don't bother asking about the numbers life is not a numbers game But it's interesting because I've been on other people's shows that have had many, many uh, people tune in, like heaps, heaps of people. And I've never had anyone reach out and have a session with me. 
or even maybe go over and subscribe to my website. So the numbers is not about how many people participate. I was talking to Jaylene Tracy, who I've had on the show a few times. I was on her show yesterday, coming out soon. We had a great conversation, the two of us. I'll put that up on my Facebook page. And um, even though maybe only a few hundred or a couple of thousand people watch the shows, everyone that comes on the shows, people engage, they get work out of it. People buy the books, they buy the documentaries. So even though I don't have a huge listenership, the people that are watching and listening, you guys are really engaged in what's happening. So blessings to you. Thank you again for being so engaged. It's so beautiful. All right, I'm going. Remember to check out the book Awakened by Death if you haven't already. And uh, I'll see you next time. Bye for now.